pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to uh, move into our teaching time together this morning. And uh, as we do, I want to ask you to kind of think in your brain about, have you ever come across a law or a rule that when you read it, you just thought, this is ridiculous. I don't know who makes these things up. When did this get made up? Was it in this century, in some other century? Like some laws are just weird. Can we agree that some laws are weird? So, um, this, uh, sometimes laws are made and they're really, they're for an old problem that we don't have anymore. And so, uh, this morning, I want to just highlight 10 laws that are still on the books in Canada that I think are weird. There's probably lots of other ones that are weirder or different than this, but uh, here are strange laws still on the books in Canada. So, let's start with the province of BC. Number one, it is illegal in the province of BC to kill a Sasquatch. (laughs) That's the law, people. We can't go around killing mythical creatures that don't exist. (laughs) In Vancouver, (laughs) uh, up until 1986, for a long period of time in the city of Vancouver, it was illegal to sell a stove on Wednesday. I don't know why. It just was. In Port Coquitlam, it is currently illegal to own more than four rats at a time. I don't know why you want to own one rat, let alone four or more rats, but that's the law. In Alberta, current law in the province of Alberta states that it is against the law to paint a wooden ladder. Don't do it. In Saskatchewan, in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan, it is illegal to walk down the main street with your shoes untied. Illegal. Not just not recommended. Number six, in the province of Ontario, this is one of my favorites. If you do not pay your hotel bill in Ontario, the province can legally sell your horse. So that, not your house, your horse, to pay for your hotel stay. In Ontario, keeping with the horse theme, it is also illegal to drive your sleigh on the highway without at least two bells attached to the harness of your horse to let other people know you're driving your sleigh down the highway. It is, going further east to Halifax, it is illegal for taxi drivers in Halifax to wear shorts or t-shirts. Let's be clear, they have Uber and ride-sharing there, but don't wear a t-shirt or shorts if you work for a taxi company. Nationally, now this is still on the books, federal law prohibits you from removing a Band-Aid in public in Canada. And it is also illegal in Canada to challenge someone to a duel or to accept an invitation to a duel. Don't do it. It's against the law. Those are my top 10 favorite strange laws that we have in uh, either nationally or municipally or provincially. Now you know. Um, But some of these laws sound silly to us because they're from another time. Like they just don't have any relevance to what we, the, the fabric of life that we live today. And when they were first written, I'm sure there was a very good reason for them. But now we look at them and say, that's crazy, that's antiquated, that's weird. And you know what? Sometimes reading the Bible can actually be a little bit like that, can't it? 
You read something in the Bible and you think, this is weird. I don't quite understand this. It seems like it was written to people in a different place, in a different time. And it might have been helpful or clear to them, but it strikes us as a little bit odd or even sometimes a little bit offensive. So here at Jericho, we've been spending the months of October and November going through the uh, book of the New Testament called Colossians. And it's a short book. It was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a letter by a person named Paul. And Paul was one of the leaders and uh, key thinkers in the early Christian movement. And so he writes to a group of Christians who are uh, still learning what it means, this thing means, to how to be a Christian in the city called Colossae. And he writes to them to help them understand how to actually do life together in Christian communities and how to share in God's family because he wants them to understand that being part of this thing uh, that is God's new humanity is greater than anything else that they've been a part of and greater than anything else in their lives. So he, last week we talked about how he wrote to them to keep their eyes fixed on things that are important, keeping, letting the vision and the values of the kingdom of heaven impress themselves into their lives here and now. He wrote them to remind them that they were free from all the old rules that used to govern their lives and that seemed wise but couldn't help them overcome some of the struggles that they were having. He wrote to them to remind them of the beauty and the messiness and the majesty that was the church and that is the church and how to live in harmony and peace with people who come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences and beliefs. And yet, when we come to the end of this letter, he also includes some very specific instructions. And some of these instructions can sound to us like old laws. They might sound weird or off-putting to us. And one of the things that we have to recognize is we're kind of reading someone else's mail. And it's a complex thing to do because we're actually having to wrestle with, when we look into the pages of the New Testament, a question like what first century rules in the Bible are applicable for us in the 21st century? Because sometimes we look at places in the Old Testament and we say, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. You know, that's Old Testament law. Uh, Jesus came to fulfill some of those things. That makes sense to me. But then we get into the New Testament and we have to wrestle a little bit more to try and figure out, well, some of these things read a little like rules. So what do we do with them? Do we follow them? Do we discard them? Do we adapt them? What does that mean? How would we process that question? And we have to just put on the table a couple of things uh, that are helpful for us in discussions like this. And one of the things is just acknowledging that uh, the socio-cultural differences, the places we live and the way we organize our thinking and our lives are so vastly different from the way they did it in the first century that this can be a complicated issue and question for us. So as an example, we're going to come across in this text instructions that speak about slaves and masters. Well, in our world today, in Langley, that's not a category that we actively give consideration to, although we need to acknowledge that slavery exists in the world today. And, and even um, historic slavery, antebellum slavery in the United States, isn't quite 
what is being discussed, even though the same word is used here. So it's a, it's a complicated piece of the equation. And we're going to see a couple of those phrases when we come to the end of Colossians chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles or on your phone, if you use a version or a Bible app, you can go uh, to it. And we're going to start reading in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 18, and read through into Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to start with the verse that we finished with last week, which is Colossians 3, 17. And says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's what we were singing about earlier today. Then in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Never treat them harshly. Children, Always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. That's a lot of rules for four verses. What's going on here? How do we make sense of some of these things? Because it seems, if you're reading verse 17, about this wonderful, let's do everything with a spirit of love, and as if we're following Christ Jesus, and then in verse 18, it seems to us like, whoa, that's quite a shift. Now he's talking about a bunch of kind of highly restrictive things. What's going on? Well, one thing that we need to understand is in the first century world, there existed something called household codes. And these were written up rules of conduct for family life. And every culture kind of had their own unique spin or take on these. So there were Roman uh, household codes, or there were Jewish household codes, and every culture had one. And so Paul's writing to the people in Colossians, and they all come into this setting in God's new family together with their own set of household codes that are different. And so Paul essentially kind of co-ops or captures the structure and even some of the language of some of these old household codes, but he subverts them, and he gives them a new set of understandings. He lays down a new set of ground rules, because these people are all coming into God's family, the church, together and saying, how do we do life? My household code is different from yours. I look at life and the world differently. I parent differently. I think about all this stuff. How do we merge or talk about those things in helpful ways? And so, Paul sets down a new set of ground rules. And one of the things that both secular and religious historians remark about when they look at writings like this is they remark about how radically different the New Testament household codes are from those which pre-exist or existed at the same time. So, for example, all of the known rules in existence in the first century are all massively patriarchal because that's the cultural world that they come out of. A lot of them are misogynistic. They're written by and favor those in positions of power. But Paul writes to these new Christians something radically liberating and radically subversive and radically healthy. But we When we read it, it doesn't quite strike us in that way. But one of the things, the first thing that Paul is doing here is he's giving people in the household not only rights, but he's also giving them responsibilities and saying there are things that you must 
do. Not just, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want, so long as it's within these household codes. Sometimes we miss this because if we uh, switched and use a music analogy, our ears are tuned to hear 21st century Western music. So we hear things in a certain key signature, in a certain way it strikes our ears. And so sometimes when we read like a, something written in the first century, it strikes our ears as jarring or as offensive. But first century readers are hearing something in this text that we're not always hearing clearly. They're hearing things that are profoundly liberating and life-giving and healthy. For example, Paul right away puts some limits on things. And he says, listen, if you're in a position of authority, like a parent, or like a father, or like in their culture, a man, if you're in a position of authority, you are not to be domineering or arrogant. That's something that is absent from the household codes that Paul's culture was writing into, and they would be shocked that they would be asked to consider that. Also, Paul is writing and creating some boundaries here where those with no power are protected. And we're going to see that even further on when he talks about slavery. And he gives slaves rights which they would not have possessed in that culture. And through all of these things, he's trying to get across that everyone is to be treated with dignity because everyone bears the image of God. And this is radical, subversive kind of stuff for Paul's culture. Paul would have sounded like a radical feminist to anybody who read him in first century world. When he tells husbands, love and respect their wives in a culture where male headship was unchallenged, sexual exploits outside of a husband and wife relationship were rampant and totally permissible. And yet Paul says there are rights that every member of this household needs to acknowledge. Uh, Robert Wall, one commentator, says it well. He says, Paul's giving this vision of an egalitarian sociology for God's people. He's saying we're together, we're one, we're united in a family. And it is radically different from the hierarchy and the patriarchy of the Jewish and the Roman worlds. When the new age has dawned, where Christ has come, where his kingdom is being done, his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, in Christ, people are valued as equals, regardless of their station or role. This is massively countercultural and massively subversive. Paul's saying, listen, when you come to Christ, when you participate in the life that is truly life, when you come to be a part of God's family, you come under the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. This is going to touch every part of your life. It's not simply an assent to a mental set of beliefs or a feeling that you might or might not have. This is going to change your life. It's going to rock your world. This is going to impact every part of your world, including how your home functions. So Paul writes to husbands, wives, children, and parents, and the rights are the same for all of them. Equality, to be free from arrogance and domineering, protecting those who are weak 
and treating others as image bearers, the responsibilities that he gives them are just slightly different for each one. So let's look at each of those for a few minutes. So what are, what's the word or the instruction that he gives in verse 18 for the responsibility for wives? He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. And there's a much longer discussion of this in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. But here Paul writes, and it's so short, if we don't just skip over it, it actually strikes us as strange and sounds odd to our ears because submission is kind of like a trigger word for us in our culture. And part of the challenge that we have, and it's a legitimate one, is that passages like this one have been used throughout history, predominantly by men, to justify all kinds of horrible and unacceptable behavior. The subjugation of women, verbal and physical abuse in marriage relationship, all happening under the banner of, well, the Bible says you have to submit. Let's be clear about something. If you are in a relationship and a man is domineering and arrogant, is taking away the personhood and the dignity of another person and attempting to use the Bible to justify that, do not submit to that person. <laughs> that is not what the Scripture means. Why can I say that with confidence? Well, because the very model of submission that's used throughout the book of Colossians is Christ submitting to the Father. How does Christ actually submit as the second fully divine member of the Trinity to the other members of the Trinity? If you look in the book of Philippians in chapter 2, Paul writing to another group says, Christ, the very second person of the Trinity, equality with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but he, he submitted he humbled himself as a servant. How does Christ submit to God? It has nothing to do with Christ then saying, oh, I'm just inferior. God the Father, first person in the Trinity. I'm just second fiddle. What can I do? Nothing. That is not the definition of submission. The definition of submission actually is embedded in chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. So, since God chose you to be holy people that He loves, what does submission look like? Submission means you clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy. Submission means you, you are kind. Submission means you practice humility. Submission means that you are gentle. Submission means that you practice patience. Submission means you make allowance for each other's faults. Submission means you forgive anyone who forgives you. That's what submission means. See, when a person is filled with compassion and patience, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, gentleness, it isn't a hard thing to submit to that person in mutual love and respect because they have a genuine interest at your genuine interest at heart. 
Out of them pours a kind of love, a kind of winsome, gentle, attractive love. The things that define the relationship between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that exist in dynamic partnership, mutually submitting to each other out of love and respect for each other. That's what this kind of submission looks like. And where relationships mirror that, it's actually beautiful and powerful. Where it doesn't, submission becomes malformed and broken and twisted and can become dangerous and unsafe, especially when it's demanded. It's fitting for those who love the Lord to mutually submit to each other in love. It is not submitting. It is not fitting for people to demand submission based on power or authority or position. Well, let me speak to those who are single for a minute and just say this. This is one reason why it can be unwise to go into a long-term relationship or marriage commitment with someone who isn't a Christian. Because if someone doesn't share your fundamental values and orientation to the world, then they bring in their own set of expectations and a vision of mutual love. And they're bringing that into a very intimate space. And your partner may or may not share that at the deepest level. And so, in an ideal world, it would, you, you're going to both bring that same set or an aligned set of values into that relationship. So, if you're single, if you get into a relationship, you think, might be going somewhere. You need to ask yourself some pretty deep questions about that person's character and their actions beyond just sort of relational compatibility questions. Beyond just, well, I'm in a relationship with this person. It's helpful for me because I don't feel lonely. You need to ask yourself, is this person humble, gentle, patient, kind? If we move into a close relationship over the long period of time, could we mutually submit to each other? Because very quickly, the text flips that over to the other side of the coin and begins then to speak to husbands. In verse 19, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. In other words, uh, this, this language of treating them harshly is creating the construct where bitterness takes root in their relationship. And this would have been about the most radical thing that these married men in the city of Colossae probably ever heard in their whole lives. Because in the first century, the only reason you got married was to have sons so that your family line could carry on. Or you might want to marry if it was politically advantageous for you socially, if you could climb a social ladder by marrying somebody a little bit higher up than you. Or economically, you might want to marry into a family that had more wealth or prestige. And so as a man in the first century, that's not really all of the driving questions for you. You want kids, preferably sons. You want to keep on the family business. So as long as those things happen, there were really no other rules governing men's behavior in the first century. And not surprisingly then, men behaved badly, very, very badly. Uh, 
Sexual relationships outside of marriage were commonplace with persons of either or both genders. There were no age restrictions on those things. Men routinely discarded wives that didn't please them, got another one. Women were just treated like property. They were devoid of any rights. Their word, uh, we know from history, was not even considered uh, reliable in a court or evidence, admissible as evidence in a court of law. They were just little better than property. And so into this cultural mix, Paul writes and says, husbands, never, ever, ever, ever do any of those things. You need to never act harshly and embitter your wife in a way that disempowers her or creates bitterness in her heart. Over in the parallel passage in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes that the love that husbands should have for their wives is to mirror the love that Christ has for the church. And how does Christ love the church? In Ephesians 5, it says, Christ loved the church and gave up His life for her. This is a self-sacrificing kind of love. And again, right away, we see that the definition of this non-embittering love comes right in verse 14, where Paul says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Always be thankful. Treat each other with respect and humility. Be willing to put the other person's needs, wants, and desires ahead of your own. And this is really hard work because we're selfish. (laughs) I'm selfish. I don't always want to do that. In relationships in particular, it's hard to do that over the course of a long period of time. And so this is why we need the empowering, indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in us to live out this kind of peace and compassion and unity in our homes. It's the polar opposite of what we're seeing play out in many places in the media today that has given rise to uh, the word of the year for 2018. I don't know if you caught that on the news, is toxic, as in toxic masculinity. That kind of, of treatment of other people that we're seeing play out is not what is called for. So men, husbands in particular, how are you doing in this area? What's one action that you could take this week that would be a reflection of that self-sacrificing, others-first kind of love and humility for your spouse? Let's keep moving. There are responsibilities given also to those who are parents, particularly a word to those who are fathers. And the word is, fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. And this type of discouragement uh, is a kind of constant belittlement, just like a, like a dripping of water constantly over and over and over, aggravating them not about their emotions but about crushing their spirit. A parent that just continuously belittles, puts down their child, says, you're stupid, you can't do anything right. What's going on with you? You're an idiot. You know, get it together. 
More more of the same on this report card? Are you kidding me? That kind of belittlement. And then the child, over time, starts to believe that that's actually true. Parents are reminded, do not discourage or devalue or belittle your children in that way. And the reason is that parenting is a sacred task. Parenting is a spiritual matter. Parenting is is a wonderful responsibility that God has given to us. In the book of Proverbs, it says, uh, to raise or to train up a child in the way that they should go. Set them on a pathway for life. It's an incredible responsibility. Those of you who are teachers share in that as well. It's an incredible and sacred task. And it doesn't mean that that children or students don't require guidance along the way. That's not what's being said here. Just, oh, hands off on any correction or any, because, whoa, we might not want to belittle or aggravate our child. That's not what's being said. What's being said is you need to be careful and attentive that you don't try and set them on a path in a coercive, authoritarian way. Use sacrificial love and empowering service in the way in which you parent. And this, again, is really hard work because this is a kind of rich and deep love that doesn't always flow naturally in the heat of a moment or an argument or a discussion or a disciplinary encounter with your children. How do we do this over the long term? Again, we need strength that God provides us. And then Paul flips it and says, children, there's a responsibility that you have as well, and that is obedience. Children, always obey, verse 20, your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, actually takes this even further and says, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. This is the right thing to do. This is, verse 3, the first commandment with a promise hearkening back all the way to the Old Testament and to the book of Deuteronomy. And the promise is this, if you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. I can remember as a child, uh, we lived up in northern BC and we would drive down every now and then to visit family on the coast here. And we would stop in uh, when we would get to Surrey, we'd turn off and we go past the big flag, and we go visit my great-grandma in Guilford. And she lived to be uh, over 100 years old. I remember clearly as a kid, we all had her 100th birthday party. She was the first person that I knew that made it into that, uh, into that era. She got a letter from the queen, all that kind of stuff. And so I can remember as a young kid just being fascinated by my great-grandmother. And she was a wise woman, but she was also a little bit scary Uh, She was sort of, um, you know, when you get to be over 100 and your skin gets kind of just flappy and your bones start to show through a little bit more because you've been around the block a lot. So I can remember being, I don't know, maybe six, seven years old and kind of coming up and kind of getting close to my grandma Nan and just as an impertinent young child saying, great grandma, how did you get to be so old? old. And she got real close, and she stuck her bony finger right in my face, and she said, 
Ephesians 6, verse 3, I obeyed my parents. (laughs) And that worked for me. I was scared into honoring my father and mother so that things would go well for me and I would live a long life on the earth like my great-grandma Nan. Now again, this kind of obedience, it's predicated on love. Again and again, this phrase is used because it pleases the Lord. Because it pleases the Lord. That's not found in any of the household codes that Paul's writing. To children, most of the ancient household codes are Obey your parents or they will literally kill you. (laughs) Paul says, no, no, children, you need to obey your parents because it pleases the Lord. Why? Because this is an act of love. It's rooted in love. So demanding obedience without love or as a parent conditioning love upon 100% obedience is going to imperil the child's formation because it alienates them from nurturing relationships with God, with family, and with community. Obedience pleases the Lord because when parents are following their instructions to raise up children who honor the Lord and set them on the right path without embittering them and belittling them, then it means that they can obey. You've created the right constructs or the right environment or ecosystem for obedience to take place in. Paul keeps going. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, he, let's read in verse 22. He switches from talking about fathers and then says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. So these would be people who are working in the households. Uh, obey your earthly masters in everything you do trying to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving really is Christ. But if you do what's wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong that you've done for God has no favorites. Masters, Be just and be fair to your slaves. Radical instructions again. Remember, you also have a master in heaven. So when you think about slavery, again, in this context, it's not a perfect description of either downtown Abbey and indentured servitude or even uh, a slavery in the uh, Americas um, in history. It's something a little bit different But it's always about economic exchange. Somebody is in charge and somebody is benefiting because this slave or this individual is doing certain things for them. And a lot's been written about first century slavery. And and the question that often comes up is, why doesn't Paul just right away say, slavery is sick, wrong, and evil, get rid of all of it? And part of what we have to wrestle with is Paul's notions of Christian community and his moral teaching are uh, what N.T. Wright calls visional. In other words, Paul's working to try and create a new order within existing structures and systems. So he's not saying, by silence on the subject, Paul's not saying, yeah, yeah, slavery's just fine, keep it going, who cares? He's trying to say, within it, both to masters and to slaves, you need to think and operate in a very different way. 
He's simply addressing how to live in a world where slavery does exist. And imagine if you're a slave sitting in an early Christian community, you're asking yourself, what is this message of Jesus? People talk about it being good news. How is that good news for me? I'm at the lowest rung on the totem pole here. And what Paul writes is, again, some radical, radical stuff. Again, he sets his framework in place and says, every single person is valued. Every single person is assured their personhood. And that's an equal value. He says, God has no favorites in this equation, which is radical because in the ancient world, slaves were even worse off than women were. They were treated like animals. And Paul says, no, no, no. As a slave, you have dignity, you have worth, you are a person. Do not let your master take that away from you, even if they continue to treat you like an animal, you are not. You are a loved and valued individual. This is why we do the work that we do as a church and our partnership with Under the Same Sun in Tanzania. Because people with albinism there are still told, you're not a person. You don't have rights. You don't have responsibilities in this society. You can be discarded in any way. And this is the infrastructure that Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 no. We cannot believe that to be true. And so some of these instructions actually can be translated into our world. You might look at this and say, well, I don't have slaves. And I'm certainly not a slave, so what in the world does this passage have to say to me? I'll just skip over it and keep going to the next thing. Uh, but because this is a little bit about economics, some of that applies to the interactions between employers and employees. That's not to say that slaves are treated like employees, it's simply to try and find, is there something going on in this text that we could carry with us into our world? And some of that is true. So some of it could speak to the responsibilities of employers. And so when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, you need to be just and fair to those who are in your household, really what he's saying is, if you're an employer, you're responsible for the way in which you treat your employees. Do you pay them fairly? Do you create an environment where they can do their jobs with diligence? Be just, be fair. Remember, you're also one under authority. You have a master in heaven who treats you with love, respect, and generosity. And so how are you then treating others around you? Are you reflecting that same kind of attitude? And so if you're an employer, one of the questions to ask is, am I bearing witness to Christ in the way that I treat my staff. Or another way of phrasing it is, who's really in charge in that employment environment? Who is it that reigns where we live and work? If you're an employer and you go into this week and you say, hey, why don't you come to church with me at uh, Jericho Ridge? You know, we're in this new space on 64th Avenue and uh, your employees go, what? That woman is a Christian? <laughs> whoa, I would have never picked that up from the way that they behaved. That's a shock. That means that maybe some of the rule and reign of Christ in your heart is not making its way over into your employing environment. And it's your home and your business. You don't have to call your business Jesus loves you carpet cleaning in order for it to be a Christian business. 
Some best practice businesses are just Christian principles, and so are you actually seeking to bring your faith to work with you? Also, there's responsibilities that are given to workers here, and the question is, for those who are an employee, what does it mean to serve to masters? Because you've got a boss or a company that you're working for, but you're also, Paul says, are actually throughout the whole of your life, no matter who writes the paycheck or who puts money in your bank account or not, you're actually working and doing your life under the authority of a boss or a master in heaven. And so, think about how radical it would have been in that culture for a slave to serve with integrity, with diligence, with obedience, with joy. Like, if you were a master, you would say, what's up? (laughs) I don't understand this person's conduct. Like, this should not be happening. They should be trying to steal everything they could because they got nothing going on in their life. They should be trying to get ahead in every single way. And yet, they're treating, they're operating in a different way. What a powerful witness to the transforming presence of Christ. So if you're an employee, are you bearing witness to Christ in the way that you do your work? Paul gives specific examples. Part of that means being diligent at your job, not just when the boss is watching, but all the time. And then also doing even the little things as acts of worship. Even ordinary tasks can be done as unto the Lord. doesn't matter what you're doing. Stacking boxes, being at home, parenting, collecting trash, constructing buildings, selling homes, processing financial transactions, driving truck, growing food, both in the what you do and the how you do it, you can choose to bear witness to Christ. Because really what is happening here in any any and all of these instructions, the, the larger picture that's being painted is not about status or gender or role. It's a discipleship question. This is why Paul continuously uses these phrases like, we do this as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord, or do this because it pleases the Lord, or do it because of your reverent fear for the Lord, or the Lord will give you an inheritance as a reward. Because it doesn't matter whether you're a wife, a husband, a child, a parent, a single adult, an employee, an employer. More foundationally, you are called to be a disciple. You are called to be an apprentice of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And so Paul says all of these things, and verse 2 as he wraps it up, all of these things and all of these people, we need to devote ourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us too, that God may give us opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious. Let it be attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Friends, this is a high and holy privilege, but it is hard work. And so we need the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need the help of others in Christian community to do this. We need God to remind us to bring conviction when we stray, empower us for work and worship. 
So the worship team's going to come and lead us in a song of response. And as they do, I want to give us just a simple question to reflect on. And that is this. What is one area of your life that maybe is not proclaiming and reflecting Christ in the way that you would like it to? What's one area of your life? Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe it's something specific in the way that you are either behaving as an employer, as an employee, or as a parent, or something that you just think, you know what, I feel a little bit of a stirring in me. I think I need to attend to that, pay attention to that. Just take time then to say, okay, God, by your Holy Spirit, I want to make changes in that area of my life. I want to reflect you more clearly and accurately. Or maybe for you, there's an area that you want to give thanks to God for, because that's how Paul finishes this text and says, in all things, giving thanks to God the Father. And we want to join you in that process. The worship team's going to lead us in song. Our practice here at Jericho is to have people available at the back uh, for response. And so James is back there. I'll be back there as well. And we want to pray with you. Allie will be back there. If there's an area of your life that you want to just say, hey, I'm grateful to God for in this area, then we'd invite you to participate in that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your gracious work in our lives. We thank you that it touches every part of who we are. It touches our parenting, touches our employment relationships, touches our interactions with you and with each other. And so, God, we want to walk in faithful obedience to you as your disciples. Teach us what that means. Show us how to do that. Where we fall short, God, uh, we ask for your mercy and grace to cover us in those times. Because we can't do this on our own strength. We need you. And so we humbly confess that in the name of Jesus.